Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Travis Christopherson, who has written, I believe, his third book, Ketones, The Fourth Fuel. And we've had him on for his previous two books, the first one being uh, the metabolic theory of cancer, uh, which was really one of the most intriguing books I've ever read and really catalyzed my journey along the path of understanding metabolic flexibility and, and integrating all the strategies that's required to benefit from this optimization, which interestingly appears to be one of the two primary methods of building up resilience against this infection, COVID-19, which is because when you're metabolically flexible, you're not insulin resistant. Uh, and the other one, of course, being vitamin D. But we're not gonna get into vitamin D today. We're gonna be going into the metabolic flexibility and ketones. And Travis, you've <clears throat> read your book. It's just fascinating. You've uh, done a it, you, I, I love your writing style because it's just so, it's like a novel. Uh, anyone who has an interest in this subject just has to get this book because you, you uncovered really fascinating insights historically of how this all developed from all the way down to Warburg, to Krebs, and then finally to Veach, Richard Veach, who's, you know, the bulk of the book is about and, and his integration into ketones. So why don't you... Uh, well, welcome, first of all. And why don't you share with us why you decided to write this book? <laughs> so, yeah, the, the interest in ketone metabolism goes back. Um, well, it began with with the first book, Tripping Over the Truth, which when you track the metabolic theory of cancer and you follow follow it therapeutically, the first sort of therapeutic iterations were metabolic in nature and this kind of low-hanging fruit um, dietary interventions like the ketogenic diet that shifts does this really remarkable shift away from glucose metabolism towards a different fuel, which, which are ketone bodies, which beta hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. And so that, that in itself, you know, it was remarkable as I was researching and writing the book that we had this sort of hidden metabolism. And I've always thought that was a fascinating story because like the metabolic theory of cancer, it had been known throughout history. It had been known because fasting has this really rich, historical therapeutic value that was known as far back as the Greeks and then kind of forgotten. Same with the ketogenic diet. It was actually a standard of care in the 20s for pediatric epilepsy and was just a remarkably effective uh, ther therapy for epilepsy. But once um, anti-seizure drugs came out in the 30s and then really ramped up production in the 40s, it was completely forgotten. And it was shocking to me that you could have this really amazing therapeutic um, sort of built-in metabolism that just went by the wayside. And you, re you read history, and I, you know, I was getting my, my degree in biochemistry in the, in the 90s, and I look back in my, my textbook in 95, which was written, one of the authors was Albert Leninger, who... Mm -hmm. uh, that was the textbook I had, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was he identified, you know, he was a giant in the field of bioenergetics. He identified mitochondria as a site of oxidative phosphorylation. And there was a small section on ketosis. And it said, it just shocked me, it said, it went so far as to even say people on low calorie diets need to be aware and cautious because they may enter the state of metabolic ketoacidosis, which is a pathological state where you can die. So they had forgotten this history of fasting and, and therapeutic fasting was huge in the like 60s. People would fast for days, I mean, months at a time. And the longest fast ever recorded in the 60s was over a year with no no, you know, measurable side effects, except for, you know, it, it very measurable um, benefits. So it just was remarkable that you could have this lost knowledge. And by the 90s, 
you know, well, yeah, by the 90s, when the fat is bad, fat is bad, you know, it was hitting its full stride in the early 90s, the ketosis was seen as a terrible sort of pathological form of metabolism. Then like, you know, like tripping over the truth, it made this remarkable resurgence by the year 2000. And people began to recognize that ketones were really essentially a fourth fuel. And they had this, in, these incredible therapeutic side effects. And the scientists at the epicenter of this story, particularly Richard Veach, who was doing his work in the late 90s, 2000s, really spearheaded this, what we know about this metabolism and its remarkable effects that span virtually every aspect of our health that we can think of. And as we are sit here in this crisis of metabolism that we're in with obesity, type 2 diabetes, really insulin, you know, uh, insulin insensitivity, um, that's really where it exerts its therapeutic effect. Yeah. So anyway, it, it, that, that's it in a nutshell. I, I'm just fascinated by these stories of redemption with, with, with regard to medicine. Yeah, and you do an, an excellent job of uh, describing the historical perspective uh, from the three primary scientists, Warburg, who many believe may have been one of the greatest biochemists of the 20th century, who then trained Krebs. Uh, interesting. It, it, was, it was really fascinating because I didn't know the details of how Krebs actually got to uh, be training with Warburg. Uh, and then how and then how he shifted after the war to go to Oxford, and then then that's actually where Beach, who had had his MD from Harvard, actually went to train because he realized he didn't understand what he wanted was really passionate about. So maybe you can summarize that in more detail as to the lineage of of how the uh, identification understanding of ketone metabolism was generated yeah and i i find that fascinating too you know how 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 does human behavior how do we get to this sort of state of of excellence you know and then those guys make no mistake that those that lineage of science was so head and shoulders above um typical science i guess is a good way to put it but warburg was uniquely fascinating in the fact that he was a member of this German, um, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, which you, when you became a member, you were granted this kind of exalted status. And it, it was a, this, this um, institution that had money from the Rockefeller Institute and, and, and German. Um, and German was sort of the, Germany was the epicenter of science at that time. All the, the brilliant scientists were coming out of Germany. And so when you were a member of this institute, you were granted just unprecedented freedom right you could study anything you wanted you didn't even have to be productive when they when he was granted membership status they said you can take a walk in the woods for two years and do nothing and just stare at a beautiful flower if you want you know they just they they recognized that they wanted to unleash human potential they didn't want these guys under stress they never had to ask for money warburg had to ask for money one time and he scribbled it on a napkin and, and they gave it to him so albert einstein was a member and so they were he got his, Warburg got his PhD under, under um, Emil Fischer, who was a brilliant chemist who won a Nobel Prize. And they just elevated each other. And Krebs has this beautiful quote about how, when I found myself in Stockholm for the Nobel Prize, how did I get here? And he kind of reflected on it. It, it was Warburg. It's, he set the standard of excellence in science. And so that was passed from Warburg to Krebs. Um, and Krebs won the Nobel Prize and, and just remarkably productive lab. When he was doing his research in Oxford, he had reached such an exalted status in the, in the scientific community that the most distinguished professors from the U.S. fought to take sabbaticals to do research there. And so he could have picked from anybody. It just happened that this sort of, you know, this guy with no reputation that had had a Harvard MD was lamenting about the fact he wanted to go into research. And the guy he was lamenting to was friends with Krebs. So he wrote him a letter you know, on behalf of each asking him to, to go to his lab and, and Krebs, I think he must have had the feeling that he wanted to kind of pay it forward because Warburg took the same risk with him and he granted him access and Veach turned out to be an incredibly um, brilliant student and him and Krebs really formed this close research bond. And I didn't know at the time, I didn't put this in the book, but actually Krebs asked Veach to take over his lab at Oxford, but Veach didn't do it for a variety of reasons. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it, you know, it's it, it just, to me, it's, it's very interesting how people can get to this plane of excellence, uh, whether it's athletics or, or anything. And it's, it's really the teachers, of course, it's the person, but it's the teachers that elevate you to that status. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> well, why don't you continue with the chronology and, you know, where you left off and maybe, well, where, what do you consider the, the pri- I mean, they were all foundational, but who, who, and then another person that you mentioned in the book that really isn't part of the three, but really probably is the primary clinical researcher, at least in the United States, which would be George Cahill, who's yeah. no longer with us and out of Harvard also. And I, I believe he was, I, I think he was one of Veach's teachers when he went to medical school. Yeah, yeah, he he was a professor at Harvard, and Veach had him while he was in medical school, and he made a he made a huge impression on on Veach. Um, yeah, so Cahill, the way he enters the story, what was Krebs, right before Veach showed up in Oxford to work in Krebs' lab, uh, Krebs had made a trip to a conference in the U.S. and knew Dr. Cahill, and Cahill was at this conference as well. And what had become an obsession with Krebs at the time was what we call what the great uh, nucleotide coenzyme. So there's four of them. And these are the coenzymes that really are driving metabolism, all the metabolic reactions that we know of. So they're these central hubs that drive this whole metabolic map. And they become fascinated with them. And so he'd asked uh, Cahill, or no, Cahill had asked Krebs at this conference, do you know the ratio of NADPH, which is one of these, one of these um, metabolic hubs like ATP, which most people have heard of. And it's the ratio of the high energy form ATP to the low energy form ADP that determines the amount of energy in that coenzyme couple, which then powers metabolism. So, so he asked him that and Veach realized that they did not know this. That, so when he went back to Oxford and Veach showed up on his doorstep, that was the project he assigned him was to figure out how charged um, this coenzyme couple was, NADPH. And that set in motion the, the next sort of series of steps. And it was all kind of luck. And, and so Veach studied this and he, he determined these ratios. Then NIH determined that, you know, they didn't want to fund his laboratory anymore. He had been become fascinated by ketones, in particular, the, the ability of ketones to to supercharge all these coenzyme couples. And that set in motion his research with Cahill, who, and Cahill had been doing this since the 60s. He'd been fasting um, obese patients and measuring the metabolic shift to ketosis. And he was responsible for shifting the public viewpoint, or at least the scientific viewpoint, that ketone metabolism wasn't pathogenic. In fact, it was this extraordinarily uh, evolutionary adaptation to times of deprivation when we didn't have access to food. And so that then they that then their lives sort of converged. And they began writing papers and doing research on ketone metabolism. Okay, good. Now you you mentioned your, the title of your book is ketones the fourth fuel. So the I'll, I'd like to go into some of the biochemistry of it. And I didn't realize prior to your introduction that you actually had a degree in biochemistry. It makes sense. I mean, you're very literate in science, but I didn't realize you had a formal degree in it. Um, so we, I, we can go into some of the metabolism, uh, but what are the, the other three fuels? I think most everyone would, would know it's uh, carbohydrates and fat, but would you consider protein or uh, some, some people actually include alcohol in there too. Is, is really not a carbohydrate, but you know, its own distinct fuel source. Yeah. Yeah. The three known major fuel sources were, um, were carbohydrates, fats, and proteins at that time. And yeah, proteins, they can be broken down and then they can enter the Krebs cycle directly and be burned as fuel. And they can also be converted it back into glucose through gluconeogenic pathways. So proteins are definitely, you know, are, are a major source of fuel and they can't be stored. They have to either be burned or, they, or they're converted to glucose and fat. Um, but yeah, it was known that, that ketones uh, were a fourth fuel in the 20s. But it just wasn't appreciated how the you know how important they were and what they what their biochemical potential was until the late '90s, 2000s. So I think it would be uh, useful at that point to go into the details of how those fuels are essentially metabolized. For the most, metabolizing them goes into the Krebs cycle, uh, for which 
was named after obviously Dr. Krebs. Um, so, but most of the two, really it breaks down to two primary fuels, which would be carbohydrates and fats. I mean, proteins can be used as fuel, but for the most part, they're not. They're really used as building blocks metabolically or functionally. Uh, and really they're only a last resort. Um, and when you fast, they can be utilized, but that's when really the, the alternative fuel, if you're metabolically flexible, is activated, which is the ketone. So uh, why don't you discuss how they're broken down, the fats and the glucose into acetyl-CoA, and then how they're transferred into the Krebs cycle. And then we'll go into the details of how the ketones are generated. Right, right. Yes, <clears throat> so, so the, you know, for some reason, life chose glucose as a primary fuel. And, and you, you, know, you go way back to single-celled organisms, and it just it built on that. The, the, evolu- the structure of, of metabolism was built on this central sort of platform that, that carbohydrates were the main fuel. And we say carbohydrates, they're all, they all enter the same sort of glycolytic pathway, and they get burned through 10, get processed through 10 enzymatic steps to acetyl-CoA, which enters a Krebs cycle. And then it spins off substrates that feed into the electron transport chain to generate energy. Then fats, you know, fats are very, how we burn fat is very dependent on insulin. So when you're, when you're eating a lot of carbohydrates, when you're releasing insulin throughout the day, you're essentially shutting down fat processing and you're turning on lipogenesis, which is fat building. Um, And it all centers on insulin. So when insulin is high, uh, it shuts down the process of fat burning, which is beta oxidation. When insulin is low during a state of, of fasting or a ketogenic diet, it turns on beta oxidation. And so fats will come in, they're processed. Now fats, remember that what makes them unique, and this doesn't get talked about a lot, is they're extraordinarily energetic. And there is tons of energy imbued in that that fuel source. So the body really has to come up with a way to process it without blowing up the mitochondria. And the way it does this is some of the fat is processed through um, complex two of the electron transport chain, which sort of tones down or dampens the energy within fat so it can be processed without, without exploding the mitochondria. Then the acetyl-CoA enters the Krebs cycle and just goes through normal metabolism. But the important point is that fat burning gets turned off by carbohydrates, by too much carbohydrates. And when you enter this state of of ketosis, fat burning gets turned on. And when beta oxidation occurs, when we're burning fats, it is tethered to the process of generating ketones. So low insulin tells adipose cells, fat cells, to release triglycerides, which is stored body fat. That enters the circulation. That goes in into the cells, and then beta oxidation begins. Within the liver, this is the central part of ketosis, liver hepatocytes are the manufacturing line for ketone bodies. So as beta oxidation is ramped up, oxyloacetate, the last metabolite of the Krebs cycle, is being pulled out to generate glucose because the body has to maintain a baseline level of glucose. So the acetyl-CoA cannot combine with the last substrate of the Krebs cycle, so it builds up in hepatocytes. And then there's an enzyme waiting for this, and this massive buildup of acetyl-CoA, this enzyme begins to transfer that into acetoacetate, which then gets converted to beta-hydroxybutyrate, which now enters the bloodstream as, as as a fourth fuel, a preferred fuel, and an extraordinarily efficient fuel. And so that's sort of the, the metabolic, um, you know, difference between these three fuel sources. But the important point is under today's sort of standard American diet, most of us, most, most people will never reach this state of fat burning and ketosis. They are just constantly fed carbohydrates and in this insulin state where we just don't burn fat. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It is, it is our birthright. It is our genetic heritage to be ha- to have this capacity to generate these ketones and it w- by well i guess not so much by personal choice but by um, succumbing to the brainwashing and manipulation of the mainstream media uh, throughout decades they've been convinced that they they don't understand the importance of the, these basic strategies to optimize your health and we'll go into the 
the optimization frequency for generating ketones. But before we do that, I want people to understand, and you have a very eloquent way of and a sim simple way of help of explaining complex topics. So help them understand the, all the benefits, the metabolic benefits of having these ketones and recognizing that the vast majority, perhaps as high as 80, 90% of the people in the United States are not able to actually generate ketones at all, unless they swallow ketone ester, but metabolically they can't create them. So what is the benefit? Why do we want to be able to create ketones? Yeah, no, th this is the beautiful point. And this is why this book is, to me is so important because it, it affects the, the vast majority of people, right? And can change their lives, has the capacity to change the way they age in their lives. So the reason why it's important is when our, our current lifestyle, our modern lifestyle, we eat a carbohydrate heavy diet, we have low activity levels. Over time, this wears out our metabolic machinery. We develop what we call insulin resistance. Now, when you eat a carbohydrate heavy meal, what happens is very well characterized and known. We get a surge of insulin because the body, the blood, as it's processed, the blood carbohydrate level goes up, blood glucose. We have a surge in insulin and that's the body's way of processing blood glucose because blood glucose is toxic by itself. Glucose is a very rigid planar molecule that at, when it's in the blood, it damages epithelial cells, it damages nerves, it damages everything. So your body has to get rid of it quickly. The insulin tells the cell to bring the glucose in. Then it tells the cell to process it by turning on the last step of, of glycolysis where it meets a Krebs cycle, the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, so it can be processed. Those two machineries wear out and this is called insulin resistance. So they don't respond to insulin anymore as well. The consequence of that is blood glucose levels remain high. Also, we're burning less fuel. So every single metabolic process is diminished. We don't make antioxidants efficiently. We don't make neurotransmitters efficiently. Now, this is major. Now we know the, the data, over half of American adults are in a state of pre-diabetes or diabetes, full-blown diabetes. So it's, it's a pernicious problem. All, of, all these metabolisms are not working. The beautiful thing about ketone metabolism is it completely bypasses all this pathology. It doesn't depend on insulin pathways. So when you're generating ketones and your blood ketone levels go up, it enters the cell through a different transport protein. It enters the cell through the monocarboxylic acid transport protein. It doesn't depend on insulin. So they get into the cell efficiently. Next, it doesn't need the pyruvate hydrogenase complex, which is also ins becomes insulin resistant to enter the Krebs cycle. It just goes directly into the Krebs cycle. So all of a sudden, all of these diminished metabolic pathways suddenly spring back to life. We're able to generate energy. We're able to make antioxidants. We're able to fill this terrible gap that develops in our brain where it the energy it wants and the energy it's receiving, which has consequences that go to Alzheimer's, to Parkinson's, to dementia, to everything. So it's this intrinsic, free, built-in pathway to bypass this pathology that the majority of Americans will develop over their lifetime. And, and even to say the normal aging process, if you're doing everything right, you're insulin sensitive and you're, you're once you reach the age of 65, what we consider healthy 65-year-olds even show a brain energy gap of 14% that can be eliminated by, by ketone metabolism. So it's just this, this you know, it, remarkably intrinsic therapeutic way to address the bi biggest health crisis that we have in America and Western cultures at this time. Yeah. So you had mentioned that 50% or half of the country is insulin resistant, but there's some compelling evidence that suggests that maybe nearly twice as high, not 100%, but 90% uh, due to a review of the most recent NHANES data, which was 1960, uh, four years ago, 2016, uh, that 88% at that time were metabolically inflexible by uh, some simple lab parameters. So it, it's a pervasive issue. But what I was seeking to go with the ketones uh, is is really elaborate on their specific benefits, and one of them we can start off, start off on is the fact that they're so thermo thermodynamically and metabolically efficient. 
And by that, I mean they burn clean. They're a much cleaner fuel, and they create far less damage in the form of reactive oxygen species uh, when they burn relative to glucose, which has serious co metabolic consequences with respect to creating uh, free radical damage and inflammation in the body. So why, why don't you walk us through that? Yeah, and th th this is really you know the, the remarkable, uh, I wanted people to understand these biochemical points, what makes ketone metabolism so remarkable. And this goes, this goes to Veach's really seminal papers in the, the early two, 2000s, late 90s. Um, when you burn beta-hydroxybutyrate, like, like you said, Joe, it, it's, it's a metabolically superior fuel. It's thermodynamically imbued with more energy per two carbon unit than, than glucose. So that sets the stage. When you burn it, what happens is it, it widens this gap in the electron transport chain between complex one and complex two. And the way to imagine that, well, the, the electron transport chain, what it does is when you burn fuel, it, it, the electrons are stripped through and they go through a series of complexes in the electron transport chain. And when it does this, it ejects a proton into the inner mitochondrial membrane space. And then that gradient of protons generates ATP. So beta hydroxybutyrate widens this gap. And you can think of that like a waterfall in a water wheel in the, or like a hydroelectric dam. So it just makes the waterfall bigger. There's more energy in the waterfall to capture. And so it, this is the one, one thing it does is it, so it supercharges our metabolism. And when Veach and Krebs were studying these four metabolic hubs, these coenzyme couples, where ATP is one of them, that drive all metabolism, they realized if there was a way to increase the energetic potential of all these nucleotide coenzymes, it could therapeutically have immense benefit for metabolism. They just didn't know a way to do this. So when Veach then sort of merged with Cahill and began studying this, they realized that beta-hydroxy did exactly this. It was metabolically imbued with, with the ability to increase the amount of energy in ATP and NADP and NADPH um, and, and acetyl-CoA. And then you look at what that does and every process that we consider important is driven to more completion. So just for example, the, the, the manufacturing of internal antioxidants, glutathione being the primary one, is dependent on NA, the, the charge of NADPH. Under ketosis, that charge is dramatically increased. So we develop, we're, we're able to process free radicals much, much better. Yeah, we, let, me, let me just stop you there and just put a massive bolding emphasis on that statement because you, you're giving us a lot of information, but that concept of NADPH is so profoundly important and not widely appreciated. I mean, it is it's pro probably ever, almost every bit as important as NAD uh, plus, uh, to re especially with respect to in recharging these endogenous uh, intracellular and endogenously produced antioxidants. So just, just touch a little bit on that because it is such, it's something I try to uh, emphasize, but I just, you can't talk about this too much because, much because most people including most of the researchers and scientists just don't get it. They don't, don't get it. it. Right. And that, that was, you know, to me, it was so interesting because Krebs and Veach had, had really, they, they drove them crazy the way antioxidant science is portrayed through the media to the public. And even the way most scientists perceive it, it's just dead wrong. Um, the, the way, the only way, the, the only thing that determines the antioxidant status of a cell is the redox ratio of NADPH. Only way, known way to change that is through burning beta-hydroxybutyrate. So there's this pervasive belief that you can just eat antioxidants and they will diminish free radicals. That has never been proven, and yet that is still propagated through, through, through scientific culture. And, and Krebs even wrote Linus Pauling about this, saying, you don't understand what you're talking about with regard to vitamin C. And the, the example I try to give in the book about this is all these antioxidants, it, it, vitamin C is an antioxidant, and it operates in the cell in that, but it has to be recycled by NADPH. So NADPH ratio alone is dictating the, the way all these antioxidants work. So if you eat antioxidants, it's just like having a full grocery store. There's 10 cash registers and there's 10 checkers. 
the, the rate limiting the step in how fast people get checked out is the 10 cash registers. If you add 20 cashiers, it doesn't help it. Th those 10 cash registers are the thing that's determining how many patients, how many, um, you know, people in the grocery store get checked out. It's the same thing with antioxidants. You can eat antioxidants and add to the pool of intercellular antioxidants, but they're not being recycled any faster. So that was a huge, that's a huge misconception about how antioxidants work. And, and when you shift to ketosis, just like you just said, Dr. McCullough, there's profound therapeutic consequences with regard to antioxidants production. And I just want to touch on two studies. When you dose mice with radiation, that's how you generate anti our, our free radicals. And you can measure the amount of chromosomal damage generated by these free radicals. Now, if you do, the, do this experiment with mice on a normal carbohydrate diet, and then you do have a, another group, uh, the test group, where you give them a dose of like a ketone ester after they're dosed with radiation, you get 50% less chromosomal damage. Another good sort of real world application of this is Tour de France riders. They discovered ketone esters back about 2012, and now all these Tour de France teams, you know, can't get them they stock up on them before the Tour de France. And the reason they're so important is by this third week of, of this grueling bike race, you know, the primary pathology, you know, the primary reason you're not recovering is because you're generating so many free radicals by this massive intake of oxygen and exercise. But when they take this ketone ester, it probably the reason it operates in these, they, they, they quote, they say they have an unprecedented ability to recover when they take this ester. And it's because it's blunting this free radical generation and, in, and you know massively increasing their ability to to cope with all these free radicals that are damaging tissues and you know sort of grinding them down as this race occurs so yeah that that it's a very misunderstood um science and the only you know known way right now according to veach to increase capacity is through beta hydroxybutyrate yeah just just to make it clear uh because some people may not realize that beach passed away earlier this year in February, uh, and he's no longer with us, but you're referring to the papers he's previously written, of course. Um, now, with respect to those two applications, I think they're really useful. You talk, talk about competitive elite athletes like Tour de France writers, and, and it's, I understand the state of the art. Almost every person in that race is on ketone esters because they're such a competitive disadvantage that they aren't. And it's still legal, although they may they may ban it at some point. Although I don't know how they could test for it, but because uh, it's really no different than what your body produces. Um, but you know, if you, I guess if you get a person tested out of like six seven millimoles of ketones, <laughs> yeah, they probably they probably were were doping with the esters. But but anyway, everyone's taking it. But the other, so we can use it for enhancement of our performance, but most of us are not going to be doing engaging in exercise that comes anywhere near a fraction of a fraction of that level of intensity. So that that's not really a widespread uh, possibility or a possible application. But the, the more important one is literally diagnostic x-rays. And you mentioned the radiation for chemotherapy, and that's a really useful one too. But most of us, again, are not going to be getting radiation for chemotherapy, hopefully. But almost every one of us will be exposed to diagnostic uh, ionizing x-rays. -ray, x uh, and it's this application where you have to be out of your mind not to be engaging in a combination of nutritional ketosis and exogenous ketone esters. So why don't you uh, give us your perspective on that? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I certainly would would do that with any, any, anytime I knew I was going to be, you know, irradiated or increased free radicals. It's a, it's a wonderful tool. Or, or flying a plane. To well, exactly. Flying a plane. And, and also with regard to uh, just general aging. And we know, I, I tried to touch on that in the book about the theory, the current theories and why we grow old. And it's always one of the theories that stood the test of time is the Harmon free radical theory of aging, which is that we, we really do have a, produce a lot of just endogenous free radicals just by normal metabolism. And that has always been sort of considered the proximal cause of aging because it's the main damaging event within the cell. And so one of the ways to just mitigate this, you know, this constant endogenous free radical production is, is through, through ketosis, ketone metabolism, beta hydroxybutyrate. It, it slows the production of free. We didn't even talk about that. 
when, when you widen that free energy gap, most of the endogenous produced free radicals come from the coenzyme Q couple, which is the second step in the electron transfer chain. Electrons tend to linger on the CoQ couple and then be released. And so by widening that gap, you oxidize the CoQ couple. And what that means is that there's just fewer electrons lingering on there. So it changes the, the biochemical nature of the electron transport chain. There's less production. Additionally, you have this enhanced ability to deal with the production through the glut, enhanced glutathione uh, efficiency. So it, it's really, and that's this sort of next, where Veach really wanted to go with ketone metabolism. And the last few papers he wrote before he died were on the, the anti-aging capacity of, of ketosis. And it's not just this ability to um, change metabolism. It's also through the, uh, what we call pleiotrophic effects. When, when nature has a very beneficial substance, it tends to build in other functionality. And Veach was, you know, entranced with discovering what these other functionalities were. And, and that led him to realize that it had this, uh, these other potent sort of anti-aging effects beyond just metabolism. Yeah, positive pleiotropy. I also wanted to thank you for uh, clearing up a confusion that I had. I suspect many other people do, um, because when you talk about energy metabolism, obviously you're going to talk about the electron transport chain, and, and the, that is uh, part of that is the cytochromes or the complexes. And your book does a really great job of discovering the history of the cytochromes, which are in the electron transport chain. And when it was initially discovered, they thought that was that there was these five different cytochromes. And although they're, they're clearly there, it's they're associated with proteins. And it's the protein cytochrome complex, complex that it's actually referred to as a complex. So, because you sometimes, it's frequently in literature, there's interchangeably cytochromes versus complex, but complex is, is the more accurate term. So thank you for clearing up the confusion, for at least for me, and I think other people would have that too. But I also wanted to comment on the point that, uh, gosh, it must have been four or five years ago, we were at a conference in Orlando, I believe, and we hadn't seen each other for a while, and you, you had not written your second book yet, but you were engaging in the research for it, and you enlightened me as to the Horvath methylation clock. Uh, and uh, some of the Yamanaka transcription factors, which to me are some of the most exciting things in longevity. But uh, you, you, we both share a, pa a, a passion about longevity. And I suspect that this passion is one of the things that fueled your interest in ketones. Because to me, unless you have an understanding and practical application of this knowledge, to op it's really, really beyond challenging to optimize longevity pathways. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. And, and what's the right way to do it? And, and nobody, you know, we don't have clear answers to that yet. It, it, should it be done through fasting? Should it be done through a, a consistent ketogenic diet? Exogenous ketones, right? W no what is knows. what is the optimal so pathway? No one let, quite knows. Let's go that. there now. I was going to go there later, but you brought it up, so... Uh, you know, I have my thoughts, but I'm curious that, because you've been studying this for longer than I have, and I'm wondering what your uh, digestion or consumption or digestion of the material has led, led you to what type of conclusions with respect to practical aspects of implementation. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I, the, most, the, the most studied and the most obvious to us are these nutrient sensing pathways. That we, that we know now that, that, that really this goes back to 1935 and Clive McKay at Cornell when he discovered that caloric restriction could increase the, the, the lifespan of rats by 30 to 50%. And then that led to this really a transfix the anti-aging community on these nutrient sensing pathways like AMPK, mTOR, and now beta hydroxybutyrate and how they operate. Now, one, another misconception with these nutrient sensing pathways is that just with regard to longevity, not health span, we touched on that with, you know, if somebody's in the throes of, of insulin resistance, they, they, these pathways are a potent therapeutic way to combat that and, and live life to the fullest. But with regard to pure longevity, shorter lived species like mice tend to respond to these nutrient sensing, um, uh, you know, therapeutic methodologies better like fasting and, and caloric restriction and so forth. Long-lived species tend to respond less well. Uh, 
So even if you engage in, in fasting or ketogenic diets throughout your life, it'll for sure increase your capacity to enjoy life and, and feel better. We don't know how much life it's going to add in the long run, right? How long it's going to increase that lifespan. But there, there's a new... There's a new understanding of aging that, that really has come within the last few years. And David Sinclair at Harvard has really done a lot to elucidate this. And it's what he calls, you sort of coined the phrase, it's the, the, the informational theory of aging. And what that states is when, you, when you're born, so at the moment, I actually go back, the moment you're conceived at the time of fertilization, the, the DNA that you inherit from your mom and dad, 23 chromosomes from each, is wiped clean. And there's a new epigenetic system installed that allows this process of embryogenesis to unfold. As that unfolds, each cell gets its own, becomes its own differentiated cell to do its job, a liver cell, a neuron, a stomach cell, and so forth. Over time, as we live, as we live this epigenetic software that is telling what cells, what, what genes to turn on, starts to drift. And that's why Sinclair calls this the informational theory of aging is what the cells lose inf their information. So a skin cell will start producing, say, liver genes and, and kidney genes get turned on. All of a sudden now it can't do the job of, of a skin cell. It becomes less supple. It can't, you know, grow hair as well and things like that. So we think this is probably one of the most important aspects of aging that's causing the actual direct effect of aging. And th this ties in with the free radical theory because it goes to how is this epigenetic drift happening? And it it's happens that sirtuins, which require NAD, are required to maintain the epigenome and repair DNA damage from free radicals. So they're put in this impossible position of having to do both. So over time, our, our epigenome drifts away from this you know, fidelity that it had in our youth. And, and so how do you restore that? How do you slow that process? And now we're learning that that there is an intrinsic ability of every cell to sort of reset back to a youthful state. And it's the exact same program that's in our cells that happens during the time of fertilization when we reset our genome back to a, a biological age zero. And we're learning in cells now in, in Petri dishes how we can add even small molecules. And a lot of these are natural products, ironically. Um, that reset the genome. We call this transient reprogramming. So I do believe we are on the cusp of a new era of anti-aging medicine where we really can reset our epigenome back to this state. And, and when you look at what a human body is, right, it, it's, it's unique compared to most, most machines that we're used to, like a car. A car is a fixed machine that ages over time. The human body has an ability to repair itself with, with stem cells. And so it's essentially, it's got this, you know, theoretically intrinsic capacity to live forever if you, could re if you can maintain that ability to repair itself. And this repair happens really fast. You have a new liver generated every two months. Every year, 98% of your atoms are exchanged in your body. So this repair is happening constantly. If we can maintain the stem cells ability to do this over time, we think, you know, then we can start chipping away at, at, at seeing this really, these eye-popping increases in human longevity. In the meantime, what we can do is maintain levels of NAD because NAD is critical for serotonins to do both these jobs and maintain the epigenome. And, you know, there's all this focus now and it's, they're wonderful, wonderful supplements are the NAD precursors, but also Veach showed that simply beta-hydroxybutyrate metabolism ketosis will dramatically increase the levels of NAD in our bodies. And, and this decline between age 40 and 80 is about 33%. So we, we're losing NAD as we age. And if we can restore this back to levels, we'll allow this serotonins to do their job and, and maintain the epigenome. So exogenous um, you know, precursors, NAD precursors and ketogenic diets or fasting or ketone supplements are one way to really slow this pernicious process of epigenetic aging. Yeah, the, uh, there's no question there's a loss of NAD as you age, but like most aspects of aging, uh, there's a massive confusion about this because it, it's an artifact of uh, things that are, that are relatively unrelated to aging, and that is just the consequence of engaging of a metabolically inflexible diet and lack of exercise. The, those two strategies alone will radically decrease your NAD independent 
of how old you are. So most people, it just becomes worse the older you get. But doesn't the point of saying that is it doesn't have to be that way. If you're engaged in healthy behaviors, you you, you may have a decline, but it may be 95% less than the typical person in the, in, the, in the environment. But what I wanted to dialogue about was the optimal frequency of, or, or eating patterns to generate ketosis, nutritional ketosis, because you, it's, it's possible that someone listening to our conversation would be so excited as I was when I first read your book, Tripping Over the Truth, to, and believe that since it's so great, let's do it all the time continuously. And for many people listening to this, that's probably a good idea for months or maybe even years, depending on a metabolically inflexible there. But at some point, they're going to reach an optimized health level. And once they're there, they're able to generate, their body's able to produce ketones on a consistent basis. Then I believe, and I'm really convinced on this, and I suspect you are too, but I want to hear your views on it, that it's actually highly counterproductive to go on a low carbohydrate diet continuously. And, and actually your ability to generate ketones and, and produce and suppress glucose just changes quite considerably. So I've come to the conclusion that it's, it's important to be on a, a, a pretty low carb diet until you're able to become metabolically flexible and, and insulin sensitive. And once you reach that, that state, probably increasing your carbohydrate level, depending on your exercise level to 100 grams, maybe 150 grams, once or twice a week, especially around the times you're exercising, the big exercise, significant exercise, may be far more optimal and will actually will contribute, contribute to your metabolic flexibility because you do want to have the ability to seamlessly switch between burning fat and, and glucose. I mean, you do, it's not like you want to abandon glucose. You, as you mentioned, it's the, it's the, it's the uh, sort of the, the universal fuel. So we have to be able to use that. We just don't want to use it all the time. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a very fair, reasonable characterization of this. Right. When people, you know, we, I think humans, we think in absolute terms, black and white. And so if ketosis is good, then all the time it's good. And, and you got to remember that the body is, the body is stuck in this or, or sort of, it has to be in this sort of continual state of catabolism and anabolism. And you, you don't, so, so in other words, breaking down and repair. And if you're constantly breaking down, you, you don't give your body this chance to repair, to be anabolic. And, and glucose raises insulin and insulin, you know, insulin is a, it, it's in our, if you're, if you're in a high coverage state all the time, it's a terrible thing, but it's also a very anabolic hormone that, that kicks off IGF-1 and all these anabolic pathways for, for repair. So I think you're right. I think the, the, probably in the end, when this all shakes out, the most optimal strategy will be one of cycling, mm -hmm. going back and forth. And I think that's probably mimics what our ancestors went through. We probably had times of deprivation, you know, in the winter when we couldn't get food, obviously there was very few carbohydrates or none. And then times of abundance when there was plenty of carbohydrates and it was a time to, to repair and to regenerate. And so I think that in the end, that strategy will be exactly the correct one. And who, we don't know, you know, even occasional fast may be enough for people that are generally healthy. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And perfecting that and, and experimenting with yourself um, is the way to, do, to try to, to, you know, how, what, under what circumstances do I feel the best is a way to approach that at this time. Yeah, and that, that's the conclusion I've reached after doing this. Uh, it seems like at least six years, maybe longer. I don't know, uh, but a long time. And and I just I made the mistake of just going continuously, and then, and then even then I think my cycling frequencies were really off. I, I understood the importance of cycling, but I was going for weeks without integrating higher amounts of carbs. And I think a more frequent cycling in and out is probably more ideal for most people, not for everyone. You have to listen to your body. And of course, again, the premise is that you are metabolically flexible. You are insulin sensitive because insulin is not evil. It is not the devil. You need insulin. If you didn't have insulin, you'd have type one diabetes. It is a very powerful and important anabolic signal signaling molecule and you need it. You just don't need it all the time. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. Right. You, you want it. So cycling in and out, I think, once or twice a week works for me and I suspect it would be useful for many other people. 
So, so we have that as a baseline. That is the most important. You want to achieve nutritional ketosis through your diet. You don't want to be doing some magical supplements because ketone esters are, are the bomb, but clearly you don't want to use them as a magic bullet. Now, sometimes you don't have a choice. You're getting radiation for cancer. You don't have time to become metabolically flexible. Then you, you got to do it. But, but I'm wondering what conclusion you've reached regarding uh, supplementation with esters outside of a therapeutic dose, such as trying to recover from a competitive athletes like uh, athletics, like the Tour de France athletes, or engaging in a, a diagnostic procedure where you have radiation exposure. Outside of those circumstances, do you believe there's a role for using these uh, regularly as a supplementation program? Yeah, regularly, I'm not, you know, I, 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 nobody really knows the answer to that, to this continuous use with health and lifespan. The, the data so far shows therapeutically they can, you know, they seem to be extremely potent and effective. So somebody that's sort of showing the beginning signs of dementia or Alzheimer's, the esters are able to increase the levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate to what we call these drug-like, drug-like levels. So you get these, you get these enhanced pleiotrophic effects of, of ketone esters. You get the enhanced um, ability of those. Like the, another effect is it that, that came out from a Yale study a few years back is it inhibits what's called the NLRP3 inflammasome, which is the initial complex that kicks off the inflammation. So beta-hydroxybutyrate at higher levels can suppress inflammation even more. Um, its ability to act as an epigenetic reprogrammer it inhibits HDAC proteins, which are, which are proteins that install the tags on, on histones on, to, to change the genetic expression. So you can get these dr enhanced drug-like effects by boosting levels even higher. And I think people, the, the, the sort of initial data shows that people in the throes of some disease process may benefit more from an ester than somebody that's healthy and just looking for, um, you know, enhanced quality of life and things like that. That being said, you know, it's, it's just, it's a natural compound. It's a fuel source. It's really eating food in a way. And so if you are exercising a lot or, you know, about to have an x-ray or flying, you know, I think Kisonester is a perfectly reasonable thing to take for that. And, it, you know, it, it may even be just taking a little bit in the morning before you eat, maybe another way to just kind of enhance these effects of less free radicals, more antioxidant production and things like that. But you're right. Nobody suggests that it's a replacement for um, the most important strategies, which are a good yeah. diet and exercise and, and fasting and those kind of, you know, global intrinsic um, ketose producing things in our body. You know, and, and another therapeutic option, they don't, I think you mentioned it, but you don't go deeply into it in the book, is the utilization of fat sources that can lend themselves readily to ketone production. That would yeah. be the MCT oils. And there's two types of MCT oils, the less expensive ones and the more expensive ones, which is primarily just restricted to C8, uh, caprylic acid. And I've gotten to the point where I regularly consume about six ounces, six ounces of of the MCT oils, caprylic acid a day. And that base of, because I've, you know, I have to have a lot of calories. I do a lot of, actually engage in a lot of exercise and I need about at least 3,500 to 4,000 calories a day. And like, and I'm limited on the carbs, I'm limited on the protein because I can ruin my kidneys. For that. So I, I'm, I'm basically, I can only choose fat sources and there's problems with fat sources. I mean, you don't want to have an excess of omega-6 when I get too much omega-3, and then, so how, how do you navigate that? And I found that the best way for me was just to increase the, the uh, levels of uh, MCT oils, and I can get like a thousand, over a thousand calories a day from MCT oils, and it works pretty well. And as a result of engaging in that behavior, it's very rare my ketones are under one, uh, unless I'm eating a lot of car uh, carbs on a day for I'm working out or something. But it, normally it's always over one, and it's frequently two or three, just with taking the MCT oils and not, no exogenous ketones. And it, 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 it sounds maybe like it's crazy, but it's, you know, it really is a type of food, and it's less expensive than the ketone esters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The MCTs are fascinating. They're, they're, they're just a hack to get into ketosis. And, and the reason is, is it bypasses these control pathways where – 
Typically, you have to have low insulin, which releases triglycerides, which then get processed in hepatocytes to, to beta-hydroxybutyrate. MCT oils go directly into the cell and force this production because they increase, dramatically increase the amount of acetyl-CoA, and then that spills over and then creates beta-hydroxybutyrate. And that even they even cross the blood-brain barrier, which most fatty acids don't, so n- neurons will directly produce ketones in, in, in the brain. And so... I told the story of Mary Newport with regard to MCT oil, you know, back, back before the esters were developed and, and it was, it was really becoming known that key, that Alzheimer's was what, what clinicians call type three diabetes. One of the main pathologies is insulin resistance in the brain. So your brain is starving of glu- of, of energy. It can't process glucose. And so MCT oils will go directly into the brain. Well, they'll, produce ketones in the blood, go directly in the brain and bypass all that pathology and fill that energetic gap. And so there had been a clinical trial in a medical food. We'll set back. Mary Newport's husband, Steve, was in the throes of, of early stage Alzheimer's. And she was desperately trying to get him involved in clinical trials. Um, she stumbled in her research, stumbled on this medical food that had shown remarkable uh, clinical efficacy in, in a few trials. She did the research. She looked at the patent application, found out it was MCT oil. She put her husband on on this, and the improvement was just dramatic. I mean, when, you, when she tells a story, it was it, it's heartbreaking that Alzheimer's patients, you know, the level of dysfunction they get to, we, we don't see it. It's behind closed doors, but they can't tie their shoes. They can't get dressed. They can't do all these things. So they require the full-time care. He was immediately able to do all these things and take care of himself for years just from MCT oil. Since then, there's been clinical trials, I think 154 patients, placebo-controlled, double-blind, that showed significant improvement just from MCT oil in Alzheimer's patients. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's readily available. It's right there. It's cheap. Um, and you know, with the, with the data that's out there so far, it's just a healthy, good way to kind of maintain this baseline level of beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood. Yeah, I, I think it's a really useful strategy that can help a lot of people out. And just a caution, I'm taking six ounces a day, and there's no way anyone would yeah. want to jump to that amount. That's a relatively high amount. Actually, I, th- this, I mentioned that to Dave Asprin. He That was one of the highest amounts he's seen. But you have That's to start a- slow, like a teaspoon, one teaspoon. Yeah, I caught my son the other day making food, and he had like seven tablespoons of of coconut oil on it. He goes, I just want to see what this tastes like. I was like, no, <laughs> that's going to kill you, kid. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting strategy. But the, the, the MCT oil, specifically caprylic acid by itself, is so much more effective than, than coconut oil. I mean, there's no comparison. It's probably 10 times more potent. Yeah, uh, yeah. Veach was a little bit, um, you know, he thought the ester was far superior to the MCT oil with regard to therapeutic. And yeah, the reason is, yeah, a lot of a, a big percentage of the MC, even C8 is is still burnt by beta, by beta oxidation, mm-hmm. and and the, one of the things that he really emphasized is beta oxid. So just burning fat through beta oxidation is not therapeutic because it, it enters coenzyme Q, uh, the coenzyme I'm sorry the complex two in the electron transport chain. It doesn't widen that therapeutic gap. You still get the lingering effect on the CoQ couple. So the, the therapeutic, the biochemical benefit from just burning fat is not there. And so a big portion of that fat is still burned through beta oxidation. However, you do get a significant portion that generates ketones too. So he always felt that the ester was a you know, better. No, so. it's clearly better. The, the esters are better, but yeah. It seems like the MCT oil will be better than the other alternatives. What else are you going to burn for fuel? Certainly better than taking glucose. Correct. Uh, and yeah, and yeah. If, you, if, you, if you've reached your limit for protein to, for the day, any extra protein that's going to cause ki- kidney damage, then you know, it's probably your best choice. Right. Uh, and certainly better than other fats because they may not only do the other fats have the same downsides that you just mentioned for MCT oil, but they also have other complications, potential complications. So right. I think it's a, it's a really clean fuel. So, and, you know, one of the, the other aspects of the benefits of ketones that you mentioned at the biochemical level with respect to suppression or inhibition of NR, NRLP3 inflammasone and HJAC inhibition would be it actually activates a really powerfully profound pathway. It's probably one of the most important pathways for anti-aging, which is FOXO3A. 
it, you know, that's, it's just amazing with it. I mean, if there was a drug that, that activated it, and there probably are that there's some that they're working on, that would be quite useful and probably a big moneymaker for the drug company. Yeah, that, that's that, you know, there's this debate, what, what, how do these nutrient sensing pathways work? Where do they converge? You know, stimulating N through mTOR through mapamycin or just caloric restriction. Oh, yeah. And Veach very, Veach very much felt that it was, all of these converged on beta-hydroxybutyrate. Beta-hydroxybutyrate uh, changes, again, changes the epigenome by inhibiting HDAC proteins, and it turn, which turns up genes. And one of those genes it turns on is FOXO3A. And that is a transcription factor, which is another layer of epigenetic signaling, which changes the, the expression of hundreds of other genes. And some of those genes are in other internal antioxidants like glutathione, I'm sorry, um, catalase and superoxide dismutase, which are not like traditional antioxidants that have to be recycled by NADPH. They just operate by traditional catalysis and change superoxide into hydrogen peroxide and hydrogen peroxide into water. And so upregulating those does make a difference with the antioxidant capacity. And the only way to, known really to do that is FOXO3A. Yeah. It's another one. It's kind of like many people aren't aware or familiar with it, but it doesn't mean it's not important, just like the NADPH. So, you know, this, yeah. the devil's in the details and understanding these powerful biochemical reasons to participate and engage in this type of behavior to address the, the underlying reasons why you have these issues. Is, is it, yeah. is it? And, and one last thing, you know, I, I know you're focused on this too, Dr. McCullough, and this has really come to light is this in this viral pandemic where what's exposed is how unhealthy we are and, and obesity and diabetes. I think you have double the risk factor of, of death from the virus. And what we're talking about today are the exact ways to counteract that, to change that, to fix that, you know, sort of broken metabolic dysfunction that most people have. And that may be the best tool we have at the moment to fight this virus. Um, well, I argue with that. I think that in conjunction with vitamin D, optimizing the levels. But it's as a, uh, these are both preventive measures. It's really difficult to, and not that we wouldn't suggest it or don't suggest it, that uh, increase your vitamin D levels. In fact, it's probably primary part of the strategy. When you come in and you have an unknown vitamin D level to give a large, large bolus of it, but it works far better if your vitamin D levels are higher to begin with, as it works far better if you're metabolically flexible. You, can, you are not, you are not going to become metabolically flexible overnight. It's a process. Uh, some people can do it in a, maybe as little as a week, that would be unusual, but typically it's a few weeks at a minimum to a few months. So that's why you want to start on this before you need it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I just think that, you know, looking at this data and what this virus is doing, um, it, it's just, it's it's a kind of a no brainer. And I, I understand, you know, the health officials talk about these proactive measures of, of just social distancing, max wearing, but it just doesn't seem like the one thing that's staring us in the face is ever addressed by, by the public health officials, which is metabolic dysfunction. And we could have had kind of this, you know, America, you know, we're, we're really, it's easy to engage the public in, in, um, in sort of these go to the moon efforts, these Manhattan-type Manhattan projects. And we could have done that. We could have said, this is one way you can potentially mitigate the severity of the disease is by start eating right, start doing these things and, and come out stronger. But we just, that yeah. message has not been delivered. It's the pronoia concept or being inverse paranoid because we're all going to encounter challenges in our life and the, the issue is is what do you do with those but you can the healthy approach is to view that challenge as a positive influence and to engage in behaviors that are going to make you healthier which we and we missed it we totally missed it instead we submitted to forced lockdowns in our home and to wearing masks neither of which are going to make us healthier they just won't rather than engaging in behaviors like being in the sun and optimizing your vitamin d levels metabolic flexibility engaging in a really good exercise program these are things that will, will definitely move move the uh, the needle, but you know we chose for whatever reason <laughs> uh, to ignore those or net, or fail to implement those those strategies. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't couldn't agree more. It just seems like the optimal time to really bring these messages up. It was a crisis before the virus. I mean, type two diabetes and the yeah. the cost in the healthcare system is over two hundred billion dollars a year just from that alone. 
Oh, so it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was there. And we just, yeah, I think we failed. The virus exposed that and we still have yet to really um, address that publicly. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, some people believe, and I don't know, we've talked about this beforehand uh, of our mutual interest in the economy too, is that uh, this may be actually be this whole viral response may be a cover to essentially create a great economic reset because they've certainly crashed and collapsed the economy on a global basis. So, uh, and, and it's the response clearly seems to be disproportionate to the threat, uh, especially if you are looking retrospectively and seeing the benefits of engaging in this type of aggressive over hyper response. Yeah, it's really, you know, it shows just a very profound biases in, in human thinking and our the way we react to problems without doing full cost accounting. Um, it's, you know, when you do a dispassionate look at the full cost accounting of the economic dislocations of lockdowns um, versus what we're getting out of that with the, the, the virus, I, I completely agree. It's disproportionate. We got to find a way to balance that reasonably. Otherwise, it, it's just, um, you know, when you look at it, we're what it costs to because this virus disproportionately obviously kills older people. Mm -hmm. What it costs per 80 year old, it's over a million dollars full cost accounting. And if you could take that million dollars, you could save hundreds of lives of younger people, which the full cost accounting, you look in life years total, right? So, yeah, I think our response is, is in a way absurd and just doesn't look into the, the problem you know, in the right way. Yeah. So fortunately there are, you know, if you are listening to this, you likely are aware of these strategies and hopefully the information that Travis said I shared and discussed will be helpful to you, but this book would also be really helpful. And it's one that I uh, highly recommend if you have any interest in this topic, Ketones, the fourth fuel. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating read and difficult to put down. And it's not, uh, you, you're not, Travis does not overwhelm you with overly complex biochemical discussions, but really simplifies it in a way that you can finally understand it. So as I said, he cleared up my confusion about the, the, the differences between the complexes and the cytochrome. So minor point, but you know, it's that type of uh, basic uh, or, or useful teaching skills that Travis has that makes it such an enjoyable read. Thank you. Thank you for that, Dr. McCullough. All right. Any other things you'd like to add before you sign off? No, I think we hit all the good points. You know, the, the take-home point for me is is when we look at healthcare and and how we parse up and spend enormous amounts of money on each disease and make almost no progress year after year. We have this basically free, intrinsically installed healthcare therapy, therapy installed in every one of us, and we don't talk about it. It doesn't. It, it just falls into a healthcare system that doesn't know what to do with free therapies. Mm. So it, it's really empowering, and, and I, I, that's what I wanted the take-home message to be: is, is how potent this is, and how readily available, and you can access it anytime you're ready. Yeah, the timing is great. I mean, it really is. I mean, this is information that people need to have now uh, because it's not going. This response to this pandemic is not stopping anytime soon. And uh, more than likely, there will be continuous uh, cautions and lockdowns in the future because it'll be if not the resurgence of this virus, it'll be the next one, COVID-20, uh, that hits us. So we'll see. But anyway, thank you for writing the book. And it's available anywhere you choose to get books, including Amazon. Correct. Yep. All right. Well, thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right.